dreaming out loud, if you will, but we knew that day, standing in his yard, somehow we were going to speak the, the gospel of Christ into this issue of addiction in Appalachia. We had to send that young man away uh, to a treatment program, and he came back and he cycled back into addiction uh, multiple more times. And I remember one evening on the west side of Charleston, it was a little after midnight, and me and a group of guys, had, we had gathered to find him. His wife had called us. And uh, we were at a particular street in Charleston that is notorious for crack homes. And we had his Apple sign in, his ID. So we had our phones out and we were trying to ping and find out which home he was actually in. And we found him a little after midnight that night and we took him out of that home. We took him to our church facility and we sat with him for hours and just pleaded with him to turn away from this stuff. And uh, he walked out that night and we got in a car, drove to his wife's home because we, was, we were afraid he was going home. He didn't. We stayed there till about 3 a.m. We waited and waited and waited, never came home. And uh, he's, he's got a wonderful wife. And again, two adorable children. We sat in his driveway, never came home. So we left around 3 a.m. And uh, on my way back to my home, I thought, I'm going to go back to that crack house. And I just want to see. And I drove back and there he was. He had turned around and went right back. And uh, I sat outside in my car that evening, I'll never forget that morning, I'll never forget this as long as I live, and I wept because I knew what this man was throwing away. He was throwing it all away, and he chose a destructive path, and it has led to that in his life. His wife and children are gone now. I say all that to say this, we knew coming out of those experiences we had to do something. We had to do something to speak the gospel into this issue in Appalachia. Not just a treatment center, but a place that would make Christ known to these men. So a couple of years ago, we started what is called Hope for Appalachia. Uh, we really didn't know what we were doing. We hired a guy who did, and uh, he, who had lived in this world, who had ministered in this world. Uh, we began uh, what we called a transitional living program right on the west side of Charleston. We decided... You know, you can argue with me, and, and you'll probably win this argument. We decided we were going to plant this thing right in the middle of, of the, the neighborhoods where addiction is prominent and is an issue. We were going to plant it there in order to be a witness of Christ right in the midst of those particular homes. So we began this a few years ago, called it a transitional living program. Our goal was to help men who had been through some type of recovery move back into normal, responsible life. And, and, and for addicts, and, and my guess is... I'll, let me just ask the question. How many of you know someone, family, close, neighbor, coworker, who battles addiction, who has battled addiction? All right, so most of you. All right, so, so somehow, some way, you're connected to this particular issue. So our goal was to help these men move from some type of recovery back into being faithful, responsible uh, men of God in the context of their homes, in the context of their employment, and in the context of their neighborhoods. So we began that process uh, in 2016, late 2016, and our effort uh, lasted a very short time in regard to the transitional living program because what we realized very quickly is that men were coming to us uh, out of the woodwork, if you will, who were in the midst of active addiction and begging us for help. So we began that transitional living program and it turned into a trauma center in about three weeks. Uh, men overdosing in our home, men overdosing on the street outside us, bringing them into the home. And we determined very early on uh, in the midst of this trauma-centered kind of ministry that we had started unknowingly, uh, we determined we would do three things. Okay, so here's what they were. We were going to help these men stay alive. 
And if they were breathing, we were, we were pretty happy, okay? Two, we were going to make sure they knew the gospel. So uh, recovering from addiction is a, is a lengthy process with many, many failures and relapses. We were going to make sure when they walked out of our doors, most of them heading back into addiction, we were going to make sure they knew the gospel of Christ. And so we have done that with over 30 plus residents in the last two years. We, they, they have walked out our doors knowing the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, we were going to make sure they knew they had a group of men who loved them. We have a volunteer team and staff of about six men who invest ourselves into these residents uh, 24-7, more or less. And when they walked out of our doors, we wanted them to know that they had a group of men here who were going to stand with them and be there for them when they hit bottom and they knew the gospel and they came back and we would minister to them. So over the past two years, as I've mentioned, we have served men from Jefferson County to Mingo County. Most of our residents have come from southern West Virginia, Mingo, Logan, and McDowell counties. Um, of those 30 plus men we have served, um, almost all of them at some point or another have either come to faith prior to coming to us or have come to faith while with us. We have served a maximum of 10 guys at one time in a home and an apartment. At one point we had three homes, now we're down to two. And uh, we seek to serve uh, right now between four to six men at a time. And uh, we have recently moved away from the trauma mentality into a mentorship program where we have four to six men in our in our home and we are investing in the whole of their life helping them to move toward a faithful life to honor Christ our goal is rather simple we want to see these men uh, not only recover from addiction because that's important but that's not our end goal we want to see these men recover from addiction and live lives to the praise and to the glory of our God um I heard, a, I heard a sermon one time. I don't remember who it was or where it was. But in the illustration, uh, the preacher said, you know, when you go into a, a jewelry store and you're looking at it, maybe a, a, a diamond ring for your wife or whatever, often what they will do is they'll take that ring out and they'll get a piece of black velvet cloth, won't they? And they'll set that ring on that black velvet cloth. Well, the point of, of setting it on that black velvet cloth is so that you, the, the consumer, you can see that diamond and you can see all the edges of that diamond. You can, you can see the brilliance of that diamond because against that black backdrop, it, it just makes that diamond pop. Well, in many ways, uh, serving men who are battling addiction... Um, that is, that is kind of a, 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 uh, an illustration of what it looks like when the gospel penetrates these hearts because these are dark, dark lives that these men have lived. And yet the gospel gets a hold of them. And when these men begin walking with Christ, it is absolutely brilliant. And it, it, it speaks forth the glory of God and his salvation of sinners. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, we have... Uh, a leadership team of six-plus men who are engaged in this particular effort. Uh, the program, Hope for Appalachia, is closely connected to the church that I pastor. Uh, we have a few hundred people there that care for these men, that love them, and they seek to pray for them on a daily basis. All of our residents are involved in our small groups and various training classes in the context of our church. They're connected with uh, godly men within, the, within our church family. Um, as we serve these men, uh, we recognize that there are many uh, struggles inherent within their battle, but yet it has been such a joy for me as a pastor to watch our church not only embrace these men, but to walk through heartache and failure with these men and still love them and care for them and seek to lead them 
uh, to, to, a, to a path that would honor Christ. Let me encourage you. Our website and all of our information is being redone right now, so I, I brought nothing. But there's a website you can go to. It's being redone, but I think it's being relaunched in the next couple of days. But you have to know how to spell Appalachia, okay? All right? So this might be a problem. It was for me, all right, initially, hopeforappalachia.org, all right? Hopeforappalachia.org. Let me encourage you to do three things when you go to that website. One, I want you to pray for our staff. I just got a text a little while ago for one of our staff. I I went over to the home late last night, uh, maybe about six in the evening. I went over and we had a fellow uh, who had been doing so well, but he relapsed last night. And I went over to talk with him and um, his battle was alcohol. And I went into his room and I think he had mixed it with some pills while he was out at work on Saturday and he came back and went in and just just talked with him for a few moments before we got him in bed and got him into a safe spot. And the staff guy was with me and we walked out and he texted me a little while ago and he said, I think I just, I need to take a day away. Uh, the, the, the pressure on our staff, our leadership team at Hope for Appalachia is absolutely immense. I pastor a church of several hundred people and I give more time to these four to six men than I do to several hundred people. Um, it, it is that overwhelming of a ministry in, in our context. So one, as you get on there, pray for our staff, pray for our board of directors. We are a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization um, and these men bear a lot. So pray for them. Uh, two, pray for our residents. You don't know any of them by name, and that's okay. Um, as you get on that website, and, and maybe as you think about this throughout the weeks and months to come, maybe just if you could just take five seconds every day, Lord, would you please do a good work in the residents at Hope for Appalachia today? These men live on the edge 24-7. Uh, people will often say, how's the ministry going at Hope for Appalachia? And I'll say, right now, it's great. Ask me again in an hour, and I'll let you know. Uh, Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock, if you'd asked me that, I'd have said it's going great. Saturday evening at 6 o'clock, if you'd asked me that, I'd have said, I don't know why we started this thing. But that's the nature of this world. Uh, so pray for our residents. If you want, and, and you know I'm going to say this because this is my main role at Hope for Appalachia, uh, on our website, if you'd like to partner with us financially, we encourage you to do that. Uh, we have a, a program, what we call tw- uh, tw- uh, 2000 for 25. We're asking 2000 Appalachians to give $25 a month. And that provides our core funding as we move toward not only ministering to these men, but especially in the future as we begin ministering to families uh, and, and children in the context of, of, of homes of addiction. Uh, those are some ministries that we're moving toward. I'm going to be around here afterwards, and uh, if you'd like to ask some questions about that, please feel free. Uh, otherwise, just jump on our website. Let's get to the Word of God, if we could. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be quick with this. This is, this is one of those texts in the book of Hebrews. I'm preaching through the book of Hebrews right now, and it's been such a, uh, an incredible and fresh um, experience for my own soul before the Lord. And I think for our church family, it, it's, been, uh, it's been quite the journey thus far. We are just through uh, chapter 5. Matter of fact, Tim Valentine's preaching the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 this morning. As you walk into the book of Hebrews, there are probably a number of themes that pop out in your mind. 
uh, as you think about the book of Hebrews, these, the, it's a complicated book. It's a detailed book. It's a book that is built richly on the Old Testament scriptures. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, when you walk into the book of Hebrews, uh, that, that creates a challenge for you as a reader. This is a book that demands you become familiar with your Old Testament scriptures so that as you get into this particular book, the, the themes and the symbolism that this writer is putting out to us as Christians, they, 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 they take on full color for us, if you will. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's a tension, right? There's a tension in this particular book. This writer has a primary goal to exhort you, the reader, to endure in the faith, right? This this is a very pastoral book. It's interesting. You can jump into the book of Hebrews and and you can think it's a very theoretical book or a very theological-oriented book, but this is a book that has a pastor's heart behind it. This writer is exhorting his congregation or these believers to endure in the faith, to persevere in the faith, to not turn away from Christ, but continue in the faith that God has called them into. And to do that, what this writer does is over and over and over, he sets before his readers the supremacy of Christ. Okay, so over and over and over, he's going to set out into their hearts that Jesus is superior to all things. That begins with the prophets. He moves it to angels. He moves it to Moses. He moves it to Joshua. Christ is superior over all of those things. And in that truth, he's urging his readers, continue in the faith. Don't turn away. Endure to the end. And so it's a a very practical book. It's a pastoral exhortation to believers who are battling through this early phase of Christianity and tempted to turn away from Christ back to Judaism. So throughout these first four chapters, the writer of Hebrews is going to note for us that Christ is not only superior in nature, but he is superior to works, to all who have preceded him, to all who will follow after him. This Christ is supreme over all. The text I want to turn our attention to for just a few moments this morning is chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Again, a very familiar text, but let us hear the word of God. Writer of Hebrews writes to us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Familiar text, right? My guess is if I did a little survey and said, what is the most familiar text for you in the book of Hebrews? I would assume a majority of you might turn to that particular text. Most scholars suggest to us that Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 combined with chapter 10 verses 19 through 25 set out the main thesis of the entire book for us regarding the priesthood of Christ. I preached through this text a few weeks ago at Randolph Street. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a good, good journey for me just to engage with this. I learned something new about this text as I was preaching through this chapter 4. If you go back, look with me at chapter 4 verse 11. Here's what I learned, the context of 14 through 16. In verse 11, you hear one of the main themes. I just mentioned it. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. All right, he, he, he's been speaking of Moses. He's speaking of Joshua, the rest that, that they brought in the context of the promised land. And now he's urging them here to enter the rest that only God can give in Christ. And so he says in verse number 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, that, that disobedient generation of the wilderness. But he turns that to us. And he's exhorting us as Christians, strive to enter the rest. This is not a passive engagement. Justifying faith is a continuing faith. And here he's exhorting us, listen, strive as Christians, strive to enter the rest that God gives to us in Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division and soul of the spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's a sobering text. You know how many times I've used verse number 12 out of context? I mean, this writer here is saying to you, the the reader, hey, strive to enter the rest. Strive to enter. And then he comes along beside and said, hey, here's the word of God. The word of God is active and it's living and it's going to dive into your souls. This is what the word of God does. It dives into our hearts and into our souls and, and it exposes us, right? That's what the word does through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word of God comes into us and it exposes who we are. As he says in verse number 12, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Look at verse 13 again. So that as the word does its work in us, no creature is hidden in from the sight of God, but all are exposed and all are made naked before him to whom we must give account. In other words, there's no faking through the Christian life. The word of God does that work in us and it exposes who we are. And it leaves us helpless, right? It feels that way. It puts us before the one to whom we must give account. When you finish verse number 13, there is a sense of fear that should enter our hearts because the word does this work in us. Luther, uh, Martin Luther would say, uh, after terrifying us in verses 13, the apostle now in verse 14 is going to comfort us. After pouring wine into our wound, he now pours oil into our wounds. That's what verse 14 is. He leaves us undone in verse 13. We all stand before God, right? We all must give an account before God. He leaves us almost terrified before God. And then he turns us to verse 14 and he has this glorious passage. Since then, all right? In light of that, since then we have this great high priest. And and out of that, he's gonna gonna exhort us. All right, if you're a note taker, let me give you the outline before I get through get too far into this here's here's the outline for this morning okay we're going to look at kind of the controlling theme of this this entire passage but really the the whole book and that's the theme of the high priest i'm just going to make a few brief comments about that Uh, then we're going to look at kind of two truths of this high priest with two connected exhortations to each of those truths okay so he's going to give us a truth about the high priest and an exhortation he's going to come back and give us another truth about the high priest and another exhortation So let's go back to this controlling theme at the beginning of verse number 14. Notice again what the author says. Since then, we have this great high priest. Now, I used to ask this question at at our church. I would say, are there any Jewish people in our congregation today? So I'm curious, are there any Jewish people here today? All right, background, okay. So we have a lady at our church now who is 100% ethnic 
Jew background. And so now I have a lot of very interesting conversations with her, especially as we walk through these particular themes. So my guess is for the rest of us sitting in this room, all of us Gentiles, the idea of a priest, especially this idea of a high priest, may be a little foreign to us, right? It may be a little foreign to us. And I don't know how you do your Bible reading through the year, but let me really encourage you. uh, Get into a program where you're reading through the whole of Scripture every year. You need to read the Old Testament. The writer here is making an assumption. He's making a massive assumption that you, the reader, right, setting in this audience today, you, the reader, whether you're Jew or Gentile, at this point, it doesn't matter. He's making a massive assumption that you understand what the high priest is and what the high priest did because he's getting ready to make a massive parallel in this. He's getting ready to say, okay, Jesus now is our great high priest. So he's making an assumption. You and I have an understanding of what a high priest is and what a high priest does. And as you move into chapter 5, he's going to continue this theme all the way through chapter 7, really all the way through chapter 10. So this idea of the priesthood of the Old Testament, the idea of the high priest is crucial to us if we're going to understand the ministry, the nature, and the work of Christ. So here he speaks of it in verse number 14. We have a great high priest. This author is going to develop this theme over a number of chapters. He's going to speak of the nature of the office of Christ in regard to the high priest. He's going to speak of the unique qualifications of Christ in order to be our high priest. He's going to speak of the implications of the work of this high priest on our behalf. I mean, these next few chapters are just pregnant with these ideas of the priesthood of Christ. Let me give you a brief summary statement. I'm going to use another author, a scholar, to do this. This is what's on his mind. This, this is what we should be thinking about as we think about the high priest. The high priest, he writes, is the mediator between the people of Israel and God. So there's the basic assumption. You're going to see that in chapter 5. Just let your, let your eyes linger down. Verse number 1. For every high priest, speaking of the human high priest, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Okay, so in, in the context of Israel, the high, the high priest among the priesthood, of the Levitical priesthood, the high priest was primarily responsible to stand between God and his people. This author continues. He writes, he and his fellow priests offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people. They had to follow a detailed procedure spelled out by God. Just read through Leviticus. I mean, it's astounding, the detail that the, uh, of, of the nature and the office of the priesthood. He writes, any variance or innovation meant instant death, as Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, discovered when they offered strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for the sins of the nation. It's a a stunning picture when you read through the book of Hebrews. The, the, The high priest, prior to entering into the Holy of Holies, would wash himself and change his clothes. He would offer up a sacrifice. You're going to see this in the next text in chapter 5. He would offer up a sacrifice for his own sins because this high priest was a sinner. He would offer up the the, the sacrifice for his own sins. He would offer up a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He would enter in during the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies behind the veil, if you will, with a censer that he would would light in order for, for smoke to fill the Holy of Holies so that he would not come face to face with the God of Israel. This incredible scene would take place year after year after year as the high priest stood in between the Holy God of Israel and the nation. Year after year after year, this high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. 
And he would offer up the sacrifice, sprinkling the blood upon the mercy seat. Year after year. And this author is capturing all of that. He's capturing all of that. And he's saying to you, Jesus now, he's our great high priest. Right? He is the one who has stood between us and the holy God. And, and, and Hebrews is going to be rich with this theme. It's going to be rich with this theme. He doesn't offer up a sacrifice for himself. Why? It's going to be in this text, right? It's going to really be in chapter 7. He doesn't offer up a sacrifice for his own sins. Why? Because he's sinless. He doesn't offer up repeated sacrifices. Why? Because he, he offers up the one perfect sacrifice between God, before God, so that sinners now can come into the presence of God. I mean, this is the high priest. This is, this is your high priest. Now, this is what the author is going after. He wants you to understand this isn't just, again, theoretical knowledge. He's going to come to a very practical pastoral implication for, for you and for me. Right? This isn't something just for the Old Testament. This, this imagery here of the Old Testament high priest is absolutely crucial for us. It is God who has painted this picture for year after year after year so that you and I, when we see Christ, would have a better understanding of his work. These high priests were sinners. These high priests, they they had repeated offerings. Christ, he comes on the scene. He's sinless. He offers up one perfect sacrifice. And now you can stand before God clean and righteous. Before I go any further, it's March. You're only two months behind. Get in the scriptures, right? Get in them. I've already, this, my reading plan's already got me through the Pentateuch. And, I was, and I'm re- preaching Hebrews. So over and over I was reminded, I can't get Hebrews until I get this here. Get in it. All right, two truths about the high priest. See if I can do this in 10 minutes. It's not happening, but we'll give it a shot, okay? Two truths about this high priest with two connected exhortations. So look back at your, look back at your, your, uh, your Bible, verse number 14. So since then we have a great high priest. Now he's going to tell us something about that high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, so he's going to, here's the high priest. Now here's a truth that, he, that he's teaching us about this particular high priest. And we could summarize that truth. We would say this. He's teaching us that this particular high priest is exalted above all things and all peoples. So he's unlike any high priest ever before. He doesn't simply pass through the veil into the Holy of Holies. Notice what, this, notice what this scripture says. He passed through the heavens. He's exalted. And really, this exaltation is in position and in person. Right? In position is the fact that he has passed through the heavens. And the idea here is he has passed through the heavens, and now he has, as chapter 1 tells us, he is seated at the right hand of the Most High God. This particular high priest has been super exalted, if you will. After he made a purification for sins in chapter 1, verse number 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 7, he's going to remind us again, verse number 26, that this high priest has been exalted above the heavens. So so we know this, right? As we've read through the scriptures, read through the gospels, through his resurrection, through his ascension, Jesus now has, has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is exalted above all peoples and all places. He is high above all. 
He is glorious and supreme over everything. He is majestic in his position as this high priest. He has passed through the heavens. This author wants us to keep our minds on this. He's going to come to this theme a number of times in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, he speaks of it. Chapter 4, he speaks of it. Chapter 8, he speaks of it. Chapter 10, he speaks of it. Chapter 12, he speaks of it. He never wants you and I to lose sight that this Christ, our high priest, has been super exalted above all things. Right now, that's our Christ. So, my map quest took me to the railroad place over here this morning. Not here. Okay? So, I don't even know where I am now. Okay? I don't know the address, I should say. Um, whatever address we're at right now in Clarksburg, West Virginia, on March the 3rd, 2019, this is what is fundamentally true. Our Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he is now and presently seated there and reigning and ruling over all things. This writer wants you to see that. Because that, that, that theology has current effects on us. Right? But it's not only his position. Notice what he says at the end of verse number 14 also. He is Jesus, the Son of God. This author in Hebrews spends a lot of time on this idea that, that this is the Son of God. You see that back in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is the first time he introduces that concept. But, but just, just hear this as you see that particular phrase that he is the son of God. Let that remind you as the son of God, he shares the same nature as his father. Right? So in other words, this high priest is not simply some human high priest. This high priest is the son of God. He is the one who shares the nature of the divine, of the God. Right? This is why in John chapter 5, they want to kill Jesus because he identifies himself as the Son of God. So here he's exalting Christ, not only in position, he's seated at the right hand of God, but he's exalting him in his person. This particular high priest we have, not only is he seated at the right hand of God, this is the Son of God. Right? This is the Son of God. This is the one who stands between you and God, this high priest. So look at his connected exhortation in verse number 14. After giving us the theology, he gives us now the exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. You hear that? So here's where theology matters. Your view of Christ matters. It's that view of Christ, that sovereign, glorious, divine Christ, as that is planted into your heart, that what flows out of that is holding fast the confession of faith. Right? And that's the exhortation. In light of who Christ is, and in light of what Christ has done, now he turns his attention to you. Hold fast your confession. Cling to your confession. It's a continuing reliance upon Christ. Continuing hope. That's what justifying faith is. Justifying faith is a continuous faith. It's not a dead faith. True justifying faith is a faith that continues to hope and to believe in Christ. In his whole letter, he is exhorting these people, listen, don't turn away from him. Don't, there's no hope if you turn away from him. Continue to believe. Continue to turn to him. Look at the second truth. Let's try to move a little quicker. The second truth that's found in verse number 15 about this high priest. And it's simple. He's sympathetic. Okay, so in verse 14, he's exalted. In verse 15, he's near. So he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
So this high priest that has passed through the heavens and is exalted above all things and all people, he is not far from us. He's sympathetic. I mean, notice what his argument is here. Jesus is able to sympathize with us because he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. In verse number 15, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And the reason he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, it says in verse 14, 15, he's been tempted as we have. So in the book of Hebrews, one of the big theological themes you're going to find is a strong emphasis upon the humanity of Christ. A very strong emphasis, going back to chapter 2, a very strong emphasis upon the humanity of Christ. And this author is going to do so for multiple reasons. One of those is he wants you to understand as a reader that Jesus understands your experience. All right? He, he has identified with us by taking on human flesh and entering into this fallen, sin-cursed world and into full human experience. He has experienced, as Tom Schreiner writes in his commentary, the full range of temptation. The delights and joys offered by sin were no stranger to Jesus. He was cognizant of and experienced the attractiveness of sin, realizing that it brought pleasure. He understands every temptation we face since he experienced something similar. That's what he's saying to us. Spurgeon, I've read a few Spurgeon quotes to keep you awake this morning. Spurgeon would write about Christ. He does not forget us now that he has passed through the lower heavens into the heaven of heavens, where he reigns in, in the this, in this state of his Father's glory. He is still touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He does not forget us. Though he has let behind, left behind him all the pain and suffering and infirmity, he retains to the full the fellow feeling that his life of humiliation has developed in him. He knows because he has experienced what you are walking through. So when Christ was a man on earth, fully human, he was in a body that grew thirsty and tired and hungry. He had hands that would callous from a long day of working with Joseph, his earthly father. Jesus, as a man, would experience normal emotions from happiness to sorrow. We would see Jesus marvel at things. His spirit would be troubled. Jesus knew emotional pain. You can't help but to say that when he's in the garden on his face before the father. He knew what it was like to be rejected as he was indeed the man of sorrows. He would experience the raw feelings of being mistreated and lied to. Jesus would learn to crawl and stand and walk and eat and speak and read and write and sing. The point is Jesus experienced the fullness of the human condition. He experienced what you and I experienced in our lives. He lived in a fallen world, a sin-cursed world, and he did so as a man, and he trusted his father fully trusted his father. And yet he did it, as the author notes in verse number 15, he did it without sin. He did it without sin. I'm not going to take time, but this is a main theme in the New Testament scriptures. It's going to pick back up on this idea in Hebrews chapter 7. But every major writer of the New Testament affirms for us that truth, that Jesus did it without sin. He was sinless in his earthly life. Tom Schreiner, back to his commentary, said this about that statement. He never surrendered to sin's power. 
He shared in our weakness and our frailty, but he did not, not even once, give him over to sin. He always obeyed the will of the Father, Christ, this high priest. He always obeyed the will of the Father. Now, you might be sitting there this morning, as I have done in the past, and you might be thinking, well, okay, Jesus is sinless. He's God. So could he really experience the fullness of temptation like I experience it? I mean, he's kind of in a different category, right? So if he's in this different category, he's sinless in, in all of his perfections. This is, this is God, the God-man. How can he really experience the temptations that I do in this fallen, sin-cursed body? I mean, that might be the question we asked. We ask. Well, that's a good question to ask. How can Jesus sympathize with us if he never sinned? Don't answer that out loud. But think about it a moment. How can Jesus really sympathize with you if he never sinned? Well, again, let me call a friend in the pulpit. C.S. Lewis. Listen well to this. This is so helpful. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. He calls that a silly idea. Good people don't know what temptation means. He says, this is an obvious lie. Only those who resist temptation know how strong it truly is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, listen to what Lewis says, this is brilliant. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life because they always give in to the temptations. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the fullness of what temptation really means. Christ, he says, is the only complete realist when it comes to temptation. That's brilliant, right? And that's exactly what Christ walked through. He could not give in to his temptation. You know, for me, there are temptations in my life, whether it be chocolate or, or whatever it might be, that I can resist for a while, but I can always overcome that temptation by doing what? Giving in. Giving in instead of fighting through. Well, here's the truth about our high priest. He fought through every temptation, and he never gave in. He knew the full power of temptation in every possible way, and he did it without sin. Brothers and sisters, he can sympathize with you. He can sympathize with whatever you're walking through. And, and how practical this is. I'm coming to this in just a moment. This is so practical because his author saying, hey, continue in the faith. Don't turn away. Hold fast your confidence. Here's a reason to hold fast. You've got a super exalted high priest who knows your situation. Oh, he's walked in it. He bore temptation to its fullest end. Practically speaking, practically speaking, when Jesus was tempted toward impatience and greed and lust and lying and theft and laziness and jealousy and unrighteous anger and drunkenness and unkindness and pride and unbelief, every time he was tempted with all of those sins, he calmed his soul and he trusted his father. John chapter 8 says something about Jesus that can never be said about any man to ever live. Jesus said it himself, I do what is always pleasing to the Father in the midst of every temptation. So let's look at the connected exhortation quickly. Look at what he says in verse number 16. In light of that truth, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the recognition here is that you have need. 
Right? That's, not a, that's not a hidden reality for this writer. He knows that you have needs, you have struggles, you have temptations. That's why he's bringing this truth to bear upon your souls today. But notice what he says here. In light of this truth, this sympathetic high priest, there is a throne of grace. And at this throne of grace is Christ. And he knows our difficulties because he has experienced our difficulties. He knows our failures because as God, he knows our hearts. And yet, he's not ashamed. This is a glorious truth of the gospel. He knows every sin in your heart. But if you're his child, or as Hebrews 2 says, you're his brother, he's not ashamed of you. He's saying, come. It's a throne of grace, right? It's not a throne of judgment for you as a child of God. It's a throne of grace with this high priest who has, who has walked through in your shoes, who has walked your path and known your experiences, and yet he's been faithful through every one of them. And now he turns to us as his people, and he says, now come, come to this throne, not of judgment or condemnation. Come to this throne of grace, and at that throne you will find help. You will find help in time of need. If you're like me, I'm assuming most of us are similar here. We're all kind of legalists at heart, aren't we, in some way or another. And when we sin, we immediately have this false view of God. Often. This view that God is in the heavens and he's waiting for us to falter so that he can pounce on us. Right? It's kind of the angry dad syndrome. Right? You snap. But notice this. That's not our God. Not because of you, but because of Christ. That's not our God. His disposition toward us is one of grace, not wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. It's a disposition of grace, and in that he invites you to come. And in coming, notice what he says, you'll find help. You'll find grace in time of need. Well, let me give you a couple Spurgeons to end this this morning. Spurgeon on this text says, We might well have trembled if we had been bidden to come to the throne of justice. We might have been afraid to come to a throne of power. But we need not hesitate to come to a throne of grace. Where God sets with the purpose of dispensing grace. It would be terrible if we had to pray to a just God if he was not also a savior. If we could only see the awful glare of Sanaa without the blessed attractions of the atonement made at Calvary. And then Spurgeon says this about this text. And here's why I hope it just kind of sets fresh on your hearts this morning. Spurgeon would say, we have a friend at court. I love that. We have a friend at court. This isn't some sovereign, uh, so- sovereign enemy of ours. We have a friend at court, he says. Our bridegroom is on the throne. He who reigns in heaven loves us better than we love ourselves. So he says, therefore, come. Why should we hesitate? Why should we delay our approach to this throne of mercy? What is it that we want at this moment? Let us ask for it. If it is a time of need, then we see clearly from this verse that it, it is at that time when we are com- permitted and encouraged and exhorted to come. Two truths about Christ, our high priest. He is exalted above the heavens and he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So therefore, 
don't throw away your confidence. Hope fast your confession of faith. The second truth, though he's exalted above all things, he's near. He's sympathetic. He's with you. He's in you. Therefore, come. Come and find grace in time of need. I mean, it is a glorious picture of this Christ. That is your Christ today. If you're a believer in Christ here this morning, that's your high priest. That's your Savior, the super exalted Son of God, and yet the sympathetic high priest who is there bidding you to come. If you're not a believer in Christ here this morning, I don't know any of you hardly. If you're not a believer in Christ, that's not your Christ. You do not stand before God as an object of grace this day. You stand before God as an object of his wrath. But that's the beauty of the gospel, right? It is this bidding to all of us to come and to find hope in Christ and to find rest in Christ and to find grace in Christ, to find forgiveness of our sins in Christ, to stand righteous before God in Christ. And that's the beauty of the offer of the gospel that he holds out for all of us this morning. If you're not a believer in Christ, and if I would read a text like that, If I'm not a believer and I read this text, I'd be sitting there thinking, man, I would love to have that. Well, you can. That's the beauty of it. You can. Through repentance and faith. Turning from yourself and turning to this Christ as your Savior. Pray with me if you would. Father, as we wrap up this glorious text, this Lord, may you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, use this word to strengthen our hearts today. I pray this for uh, this local church, Emmanuel, O God, that you would use your word today to strengthen their hearts. Use this idea of the, 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 the super exalted high priest to embolden their faith. And use the idea of the sympathetic high priest to, to draw them more and more to Christ, to find help in time of need. So, Lord, we just pray that you would use your word today to do the work that only you can do in the hearts and minds of your people. And we pray that now in the name of Christ. Amen.